Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Has anyone in government come clean on the UFO phenomenon? Can we now get past government misinformation on the subject? Is science ready to deal with UFOs? <laughs> Probably not, but hello there and welcome to the 243rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But before we welcome our guest, it's time for, well, you know it, our weekly paranormal contest. Oh, God. So last week's question was... <laughs> you our, never win, that's why. Yeah, I know. Well, I can't win. It's like being a lottery worker and playing the lottery. Hmm. So our, our question from two weeks ago was, where does the lake monster known as Mugwump live? Well, Shauna Daly of Waco, Texas, got the answer. Lake Tomiskaming, Tomiskaming, if I remember my Ontario pronunciation, Lake Tomiskaming in Ontario, Canada. So this week's question is tougher, in case the last one was not tough enough. What country did the mysterious Mitchell Hodges skull come from? That's not tough. All right. Well, I don't know. I mean, people... Point of view. Uh, okay, so... Get it, get that right, and win a copy of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record by tonight's guest. So call us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240. If nobody gets it before the end of the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at ben at behindtheparanormal.com. Leslie Kane is an independent investigative journalist with a background in freelance writing and radio broadcasting. She has contributed articles to dozens of publications here and abroad, and her stories have been syndicated through a number of news services. While spending many years reporting on Burma, she co-authored the book Burma's Revolution of the Spirit, The Struggle for Democratic Freedom and Dignity, and she contributed essays for a number of anthologies published between 1998 and 2009. Leslie is also a, uh, was also a producer and on-air host for a daily investigative news program on KPFA in California, ra- radio that is. She began covering the UFO subject in 2000 with a feature story in the Boston Globe and followed with additional mainstream stories. In 2002, she co-founded the Coalition for Freedom of Information, or CFI, an independent alliance advocating for greater government openness on information uh, about UFOs and for responsible coverage by the media based on a rational and credible approach. As director of the CFI, she was the plaintiff in a successful five-year Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against NASA In 2007, she co-organized a landmark international press conference in Washington on official UFO investigations, which received media coverage around the world. Uh, Leslie was a producer for the 2009 independent documentary, I Know What I Saw, and is currently working with uh, Breakthrough Films on a new feature documentary. In February, she received the 2011 Researcher of the Year Award from the International UFO Congress. The book we're going to talk about tonight is UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And Leslie's website is www.ufosontherecord.com. Leslie Kane, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Ben, take it away. All right. So, Leslie, what got you interested in UFOs in the first place? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's an odd situation because I was back in back in the 90s really I was just a regular what you might call a normal journalist you know I worked at a public radio station in Berkeley California 
producing and co-hosting a daily investigative news program. And I also had done a lot of freelance publishing on various topics in, in newspapers and magazines, both in the U.S. and abroad. Done a lot of work on the country of Burma and the issues that Burma was dealing with in, in its struggle for democracy. So I never would have imagined that I'd ever you know, get involved with UFOs on a professional level, although I had a curiosity in the subject matter. And what happened was um, a colleague in France sent me a report that had been put together by high-level officials in France, um, among them four generals and an admiral and the former head of the National Space Agency in France, which was the equivalent of our NASA, and some, a police chief and a, a whole lot of very, very impressive people. And they put together a report on UFOs, basically, on official cases that they thought might have defense implications that were of national security concern to them. And... I, can, I won't go into a lot of detail about what it said, but it presented some very interesting cases, some of which did end up in my book. Uh, and also uh, they analyzed the implications of the whole phenomenon. But the, the thing that really grabbed me as a journalist at the time was their conclusion to this three-year study that they did, which was that they thought the most valid, rational, and viable explanation for these cases that they studied was what they called the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So they were saying it's very likely that there are objects in our skies that are extraterrestrial. And now they, they said, of course, that this is, hasn't been proven. It absolutely hasn't been proven. But they the fact that generals would come together in a group and make a statement like that, I thought was extremely significant, and I thought it was a very big news story at the time. So that's how I got started. And I, I this report inspired me to look into the subject more deeply which I did, and I ended up writing a piece about it for the Boston Globe about six months after receiving it, which was my first UFO story that I ever published. And after that, I was kind of, I guess you might say, hooked on the subject. I just became extremely interested in it and stayed focused on it for ever since then. The story was published in 2000, so it's been over 10 years that I've been involved. Mm -hmm. That's how the whole thing got started. Okay, so how did you get military and government officials to talk about the issue? Well, um, you know, it, it was a matter really of building up kind of a rapport with them over the years. I mean, the first step was that I did a number of stories in the media which were very serious, which were factually oriented, which didn't, you know, weren't built on assumptions, they weren't fanciful, they weren't sensationalistic, like so much of the stuff is out there that you do read. They weren't, of course, weren't ridiculing the subject. And, you know, there aren't many journalists that sort of stick with a subject and cover it in depth the way I did. So just by the process of doing that, I earned the respect of, of a number of different people, you know, um, that had significant levels of that were of high ranking and also had a lot of understanding. And it was just a matter of over the years, uh, you know, contacting people, being introduced to people, developing relationships with them, and they would share information with me over the years, and I would sometimes write stories based on what they've told me. And it was just a gradual process that took 10 years. So by the time I was ready to write my book, um, I really had established enough you know, respectful. I mean, these people respected the work that I did enough to be willing to come forward in my book. So it just takes some time to develop relationships like that with people that, because this is a very sensitive issue, as I'm sure both of you know. It's hard for yeah. people to to talk about it because there's always this risk of being ridiculed. But um, I think they recognize that 
I had a I had an approach that they felt very comfortable with. I mean, that's the main thing because I'm not making claims that we know what the objects are. I'm not, you know, uh, going overboard with it, and that's the way they approach it. Even mm-hmm. though, you know, numbers of them have different levels of experience and different levels of understanding about it. They all have their personal opinions about it, but there's a certain professional position that that they all take, and it just resonates with the position that I take and the way I approach it. And there really isn't anybody else doing it like that. So I think that's why they felt really comfortable with providing me with information and they trusted me enough to, to work on the book with me. So, uh, Okay, so can you tell us about the Iranian fighter pilot's 1976 encounter over Tehran? Sure. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the more fascinating cases, actually. And I would like your audience to know that in my book, which is called UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, um, people such as this Iranian fighter pilot who you're talking about and the generals and others who I've had contact with over the years have actually written their own chapters in this book. So I just want people to know that that's one of the reasons the book is really unique is that it's not just by me telling you what these people say, but they're writing themselves about what happened to them, about what they know, what they went through and what their thoughts are. So um, in one of the chapters in my book is written by this Iranian pilot that you just asked about. And um, he is now a general, actually. Uh, at the time, he was a squadron commander, and he was sent up by a general in Iran to investigate a, a very brilliant object that was sort of floating, hovering over Tehran at the time, and it was witnessed by many, many citizens and people in the tower witnessed it, etc., and so two airplanes were sent up, and he was each one with two people. He was the pilot in one of them. The first plane eventually came back, and he stayed up and kind of tried to get close to this object. And what the interesting thing was that at some point these projectiles started to be fired towards his plane from this much larger, brilliant object that he was like a diamond-shaped object, as he described it. It was almost like the strobe lights, just so brilliant that he couldn't see any kind of shape, but he could just see the bright lights. And um, these these objects were starting to fire, come towards him. And he, at each mo- at each time as they approached, he w- he was ready to fire, and he he prepared to fire at them with a missile because he felt he needed to defend himself. And each time, he lost the power, uh, the ability to fire. Just at the last moment, it was just this very chilling kind of situation where it seemed as if the phenomenon had the ability to, dis- to, to disable his firing mechanism. Because just at the moment where he was going to fire at this object, he lost control of his, his ability to shoot. Also, when he got too close to the brilliant object, all his control panel, he lost all you know radio contact and everything went out of whack. So um, he, and then eventually he came back and he thought they thought something had landed on the ground, and he uh, checked that out. He was debriefed by a lot of people at, in the Iranian Air Force, but also present was an American official who wrote a three-page document about this event and filed it with the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's a very revealing document, and they gave this case a very high assessment in terms of its intelligence significance and really and stated outright that they thought it was you know, I forget the exact words, but a very, very worthy case uh, to be taken seriously, and they listed all the reasons why. Um, so it, it, that was a very significant aspect of this case, is that the U.S. government in the 1970s was 
taking the subject very seriously, even though they had told the public that they were no longer investigating cases. Um, so that's sort of the case in a nutshell. If uh, you know, you want to ask me more questions about it, I can give you more detail. Well, maybe and, uh, as we go, but we're yeah, but kind of curious. I don't know how much detail you want because I can talk forever on one case. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just trying to get a brief, like an overview okay. of all all your well, not all your work, but the big things that you've been working on. Yeah, so, for now. so how about the triangle UFOs over Belgium and where the jet fighters were uh, scrambled to intercept? Yeah, I mean that's another fascinating. I actually opened up the book with a piece written by a major general from Jet. Belgium, Major General Wilfried de Brouwer, who was in charge of an Air Force investigation in 89 and 90, into this extraordinary wave of sightings that were seen over Belgium. And by a wave, I mean the UFOs just kept coming back over and over again. Normally, you know, you have a sighting, it might, it, you're lucky if it lasts a while and a lot of people see it, and then it's over. But in this situation, there was repetition, so, and a tremendous amount of data was accumulated in Belgium. Uh, and you know, they were never able to figure out what these things were, and General DeBauer tried his very hardest to do that. Uh, believe me, he was not a UFO believer when this whole thing started. And one of the one of the components of the uh, and, you know the effort that they made was what you just referenced. Uh, when the objects were picked up, they, they they set it up so that the objects had to be picked up on two different radar stations, and. Call, the police had to be informed about them. I think that the witnesses had to call the police so that there was a definite uh, police report. And when that happened, they scrambled F-16s to go up to try to get a closer look at these objects. And it was not, you know, it wasn't to try and uh, do anything hostile to them, but it was just really to try to get more identification about the objects. They did that a couple of times, and there was nothing really definitive that they were able to acquire, although I have spoken and interviewed the pilot myself who went up in the March incident, which was the most significant one. And he, I mean, he he did see lots of anomalous behavior on his radar, which everybody has confirmed. The problem is that the, the second plane that went up, its, um, its equipment didn't work properly. And what they needed to get was the same information from two airplanes at the same time in order to Otherwise, they couldn't prove that it wasn't some kind of weird aberration in the equipment. I mean, it's, it's all this technical stuff because the Air Force is extremely meticulous about what they're going to accept as data. Because they only had one set of data instead of two, they're not willing to stand behind it and say, officially, we know that this is some kind of anomalous craft. But the pilot himself uh, certainly believes that it was because he was up there and he saw the behavior of this thing, which was jumping, you know, tremendous distances in, in a flash and hovering in midair and things like that. Um, so that's, you know, what's interesting about the Belgian case is not only how incredible the sightings were because there were so many of them, but the fact that the Air Force was so deeply involved in trying to solve the mystery and that it was public about it, which is, of course, very different from what you would see in the United States and what you did see in the United States during the 80s when we had a similar wave. So they're to be commended for you know, in my opinion, for uh, the work that they did on trying to solve this case, it's very unusual. Oh, so um, what do officials believe these UFOs actually are, or do they just have no opinion on it? Well, it's a, it's a really hard question, you know. I mean, I'm sure that the officials, many of them have their own private 
personal opinion about what they think they most likely are. They're very, most of them are kind of careful about what they say publicly. But many of them have stated, as the French generals did in, in that first report that I ever encountered back in 1989, many of them have said that they believe that the extraterrestrial hypothesis certainly must be considered as a, as a viable one. I mean, anybody who has studied this issue or has witnessed it cannot just write that off as an option. And when you have cases in which you, they've been so thoroughly investigated that you can eliminate any other explanation, then you're stuck. And a number of these officials have been involved in such cases where there really is there's no rational, conventional explanation possible. So you're not left with a lot of choices. And one of the ones that you think is the most logical one is as, as far out as that seems, you know, is what is the extraterrestrial option. So they're certainly willing to go on the record and say, this is a possibility and we must take it seriously. But, they, but you know, uh, they're not willing to say, well, I definitely think it's this, that, or the other. Hmm. But... I think, you know, for them to really, I mean, they for them to acknowledge that that's even a possibility or a likelihood is a really big step. Mm. And many of them have done so. They just want there to be a more in-depth investigation by the scientific community so that we can really find out for sure. Because, you know, we haven't proved it one way or the other. Well, we don't, well, maybe we have, maybe we haven't. But we understand that former White House Chief, uh, Chief of Staff John Podesta has been a great support in your work. Uh, how did you swing that? Well, that all started um, back in about 2001 when I co-founded a group called the Coalition for Freedom of Information along with a team of, uh, a whole team of people that was actually spearheaded initially by the uh, Sci-Fi Channel here in New York, part of the Universal Television Network. They uh, basically sponsored a, a Freedom of Information Act effort, which we, which meant that we were trying to get Information through the Freedom of Information Act on a specific UFO case that had more than more information than anybody had ever been able to get before, because they hired a law firm and they hired a public relations firm and all these professionals, a research team out of Washington, to really uh, go forward with this and not accept no for an answer. And that's how I got initially. I was asked to be sort of the, the public figure for this effort, which was it was and the case was the Kecksburg 1960. It's a crash case. It's something oh, yeah. that crashed. Yeah, maybe yeah. your listeners are familiar with it. And John Podesta's brother's firm, uh, the, it was called Podesta Mattoon at the time, was hired to be the public relations firm to help us with this effort. And because of that relationship, John Podesta was willing to come on board, and, and also because of his interest in the subject and because of his real commitment to the Freedom of Information Act and all that that represents. And the fact that he believes that all, all this information should be released on UFOs, and he's a great believer in open government. So we invited him to sort of come on as a supporter of this initiative, and he was willing to do that. And that was um, at our first press conference back in, I think it was 2001, maybe 2002, he, he came right up to the podium and spoke with us on behalf of this initiative. And so that was how my relationship with him started, and he, he, he was interested in how this whole... Uh, a situation with this FOIA initiative played out. It ended up as in a lawsuit against NASA, mm-hmm. and he maintained his interest in that. And I would meet with him and, and fill him in on what, hap- what was happening. And he's just somebody who um, cares a lot about this issue and really, really respects and likes the way that I've handled it, and has been willing to stand behind the work that I've done. And I'm just very grateful to him for that. It made a huge difference. 
Okay. Uh, I, I get so involved in the conversation with our guests that I often forget to remind listeners that we do take calls on this show uh, locally here in uh, New England, 401-766-1240, and nationally, 800-449-1240, here on WON 1240 AM and ONworldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Now, I did want to ask uh, one more question before we take a break, uh, Leslie, and that's why aren't the mainstream media all over this? You and I are both journalists. Uh, I, I'm a print journalist primarily, or was. And um, wh- why aren't they all over this? Well, yeah, I mean, that is a very, very big question. I mean, I think that the media is much more interested in it now than they ever were. I mean, I think in the last couple of years, the interest has grown tremendously. Yeah. Certainly, they, you know, they were all over my book when it came out and gave it a lot of coverage. But the question is, you know, why aren't investigative reporters digging into this and making it a subject of, of a new, of, you know, much more depth than has been done so far? And that's sort of a, a, a mysterious question to me. I mean, I think the most, you know, the most obvious answer to it is the fact that the subject is so taboo that it's just. There's so much ridicule associated with it, and a lot of people who are, represent the status quo just do not want to take the risk, uh, you know, to be uh, of that of being looked down on because of it. I think the other problem is that most mainstream journalists are not informed about it. They just do not know that there is something as solid as there is on this subject. That the kind of information that I have in my book even exists. Yeah, well, a lot you know, of they journalists just haven't aren't been exposed to it. Yeah. A lot of journalists aren't informed about a lot of things. Exactly. And unless you really spend the time to research this, and and I feel like, you know, what I was trying to do in my book was just provide people like journalists with just one thing that they could read and they could really get the key information. Um, And I, you know, I'm hoping that more journalists will take advantage of this book because it opens up so many possible areas of investigation for them. But you really have to do your homework, and, you know, unless they're assigned a story or something, they just uh, plot along and do what they do. Well, simply to have a journalist write a book in a concise, uh, journalistic manner, so to speak, that, that, that's uh, sensible and coherent and easy to follow is, 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 a, is a contribution that's, that's uh, unmeasurable, I think. Ben, well, you thank you. I hope it's useful to everyone, including journalists. Yeah. Well, yeah, I get what you're saying about the media because I remember once there was that big, like the whole huge like UFO conference that went on in New York, and like Stanton Friedman was there. All the big names were there. Like there was like little to no news coverage on it. The news coverage we saw like basically made fun of it. And they're like, oh, look at this. All yeah, Stan space. was complaining to us about that. Yeah, like that was like ridiculous. Lizard's I mean, probably there too. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, the media loves to do that when there are conferences, and you know what they'll do. They'll always go to the craziest part of the conference. Exactly. Focus on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they like to do that. They think that's what people, they think that's what entertains people. They don't want to report the serious stuff. I've seen that happen over and over again. Yeah, yeah a bunch of idiots, but. Well, I know. Um, we're, we're going to take a commercial break right now, and uh, we're going to come back with uh, some more in depth as we do on the show, going a little more in depth or a lot more in depth into this subject. And we will be right back on WON 1240 AM and com. Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our guest, Leslie Kane. Stay with us. Hi, this is Russ Gorman. If you're wondering what the stars have in store for you, be sure to join me for Russ Gorman on Astrology right here on ON 1240, Monday through Thursday mornings at 1030 on ON 1240. Local radio at its best. Radio, 
Okay, and we wanted to tell you about Amazon Kindle. A lot of people ask where they can get my books. Uh, we'll have to ask the, our guest if her book is available on Amazon Kindle, but it's a wonderful tool. It eliminates the necessity you'd have to go out to bookstores and spend a lot of money on books, and you buy the uh, Amazon Kindle device, which is a handheld tablet sort of thing, and now it's available at Staples, by the way. And you can download books, literally, from um, the air, wherever they come from. I'm not too technical, but the sure, thing sure works. And uh, there are over, I believe, uh, several hundred thousand books available now on Amazon Kindle. So just go to your local Staples store or uh, check out Amazon.com and uh, find out all about the Kindle device for downloading books and magazines and newspapers. So it's a great tool for the summer, especially when you're taking vacations, sitting on the beach. You don't have to worry about your book getting wet and anything like this or sand blowing in the, on the pages or whatever your problem might be. And Amazon Kindle is a great tool, so check it out. And again, as I say, you can get all my books uh, on uh, Amazon Kindle as well, nice and simple. And it's a uh, lot, uh, lot cheaper than it than started out. You'll be surprised at some of the great prices. So Amazon Kindle. Okay, we're back uh, behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here. And uh, Ben is going to uh, start us off in our second half with some questions that are going to take us a little deeper into the subject. All right, so what's your personal opinion of UFOs and... Do you ever feel like you're being misled in your journal, your investigations into this subject? Like the farther in you get, the more you feel like you're being misled to look at something else and not at what is actually the truth. Well, I'm, I'm, on the second part, I would say no because, I mean, who would be doing the misleading? You mean uh, government people? Uh, just whoever, you know, because there's well, always... We could tell you a few stories from our own point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's half-truths, yeah, I mean, whole truth. There's half-truths that give the whole truth to the crazy people that no one will believe, blah, 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 right. things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly is a problem that, you know, there's a lot of disinformation out there for sure. We, just, we ask you that as yeah. one of the more credible people in the field. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I had to learn over the years when I first started this was how to sift, sift that all out. I mean, you're right. There are so many situations, so many websites, books, stories, whatever, where... You know, the information is all mixed up, or you have some truth mixed up with a lot of craziness. Mm. And it's very hard to know how to sort that out. And I just think for me, I mean, I, I, see, I feel very clear now that um, certainly none, you know, none of that came into my book. And I think it's just a matter of spending time applying the right kind of standards to the information so that you just don't pay attention to information that doesn't reach a certain standard. Um, and maybe it's true and maybe it's not. But the way I look at it is if, if, if something cannot be corroborated, documented, you know, backed up by multiple witnesses, by physical evidence, and all the things that are needed to make something viable, whether it's true or not, I'm, I really, you know, I can't really make use of it anyway, if you, if you know what I mean. So I just don't deal with any information that uh, isn't so solid that it's, it's irrefutable, right. basically. And um, I, But I think it, it's very tricky for people because people are, have a lot of curiosity and there is so much, I'd say 90% of stuff on the internet is probably stuff that people shouldn't be reading, you know? Mm -hmm. True. So well, I, I just feel like I've sort of developed a kind of antenna that is uh, where I've been able to sift myself, sift it out and, and just because of my journalistic training, just not pay attention to stuff that isn't, you know, really, really solid. Plus I have sources that I trust and that are aren't going to feed me that kind of information. Yeah. I don't deal with people that feed that kind of information out. Uh -huh. um, well, one thing I learned in community journalism is uh, be very careful what not to believe. Just as be, be careful what to believe and what not to believe. So it needs investigation. Right. But, but uh, <clears throat> just moving on a bit, uh, 
allowing for the idea that UFOs, as a general sense, may have a number of different explanations, may have a number of different sources, some of which may be, as we say, paranormal. What is your personal opinion about the origin of the, should we say, the, 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 the golden cases, the cases that are uh, pretty much beyond doubt, uh, not quote-unquote rationally explainable? What's your personal opinion about the... Uh, the actual phenomenon. Well, I mean, I sort of, I think I sort of align myself with the opinion of the the generals and the people that have been involved in those cases. I mean, I really think that the extraterrestrial hypothesis is valid, and I think there's a strong likelihood that they are extraterrestrial. They are something physical. We know that they are definitely a physical phenomenon that demonstrate technology that we are not capable of here, and you know, we're just not capable of doing the things that these solid objects can do. And if we know that they're not ours, um, you know, any route, you, you have to ask, and what are the options? Well, certainly this, this one option is that they're simple, you know, the simplest one that I think most people consider is that, you know, they're visitors from some other planet. But, you know, people have proposed ideas such as kind of interdimensional, some kind of travel through some other dimension that might be very close by that we can't perceive, some kind of crossover, Maybe even time travelers, people have proposed that as a possible uh, scenario. Maybe some combination of those things. Yeah, we've heard it all, yeah. Yeah, we've heard it all. And, you know, I wish we knew more. Um, And I I think, you know, most people who sort of get, come up against the cases and are willing to accept that that they're real and have really looked at them like you both have, uh, you know, have to entertain the extraterrestrial option as probably the most likely one. But, you know, I feel like we, we human beings, there's a lot we don't understand about the universe and, and there could be all kinds of things out there that, and things going on in dimen- other dimensions and other realities that we, we're not aware of. So uh, I'm tell open us to about anything. Yeah. You know? Okay. All right. But certainly there are people that in the whole abduction arena, you know, that have reported actually interacting with beings and, and they would have no, absolutely no doubt that these are craft from some other planet piloted by beings you know i mean i don't know because that kind of information is very hard to prove or or, you know it's it's more anecdotal than the kind of information that we have just on these solid objects yeah you know what's funny about that is um the poltergeist cases that we've run into there are a lot of similarities between the wounds that people get from poltergeists and people who have been abductees, quote-unquote. There are a lot of parallels. As a matter of fact, the, we, we sat down with Bud Hopkins, uh, the UFO abduction expert, and oh three, we were both speaking at a conference, and uh, he had an, a, an album with him of uh, mm-hmm. various wounds that people supposedly had sustained during abduction experiences. And I said, wow, Bud, I mean, this is exactly what I see in poltergeist cases very often. And uh, these yeah. these are terms that we use, and we you know what what is what is really happening? Is it possibly the same reality? Um, now, Leslie, you're I'm sorry, is that? Well, oh, yeah, go for it. Okay, go uh, <clears throat> you're a great advocate for dispassionate scientific investigation of UFOs. But one thing Ben and I are always pointing out is that our science is based on a very limited, in my opinion, almost laughably narrow material concept of reality. What if science? simply isn't up to the task of even isolating the UFO phenomenon, let alone explaining it. What do, what do we do then? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think I sort of touched on that at the, in the last chapter of my book, that it, 
it's conceivable that even if they, they may not be up for it, and even if they try, they may never be able to even get near to figuring out what these things are. No. But they certainly I can't guess, do it with ghosts. Yeah, I mean, but again, you know, with all of these phenomena that they, these phenomena that they don't want to go near for various reasons, they have never really, we have not taken our best scientific minds from around the world, had them, you know, if they really decided, made a conscious choice to be proactive and focus on these kinds of subjects and really do some serious studies, I think they'd find a way to do it. Do we know that this is not happening, only not under the public eye? That they're not studying them? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, unless there's something secret going on that we don't know about, I'm assuming that Well, that's a that distinct possibility. It doesn't have to be secret. I yeah. mean, let's say they, they wanted to get to the bottom of the question, you know, are these ghost sightings real? I mean, they, they could apply all kinds of technology and decide to make it important, and I think so much of the problem is simply that they, they just don't make these issues important, so they don't focus on them. Well, all I know is, you know, having spent quite a bit of time in the military myself, including some intelligence work, it, it's um, the public only knows about 10% of what's really going on. The press only knows about 10% of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Uh, yeah, now, I mean, I just, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I'm holding the vision that the scientific community, if they really put their mind to something, they're capable of making great strides. Yeah, no, I hear you. You think I about the you. things they've accomplished, you yeah. know. But they have to choose to do it, and they have to pool their resources around the world and really really make it a, a choice, you know, and until they do that, so, but but you're right, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question as to whether, even if they did apply the scientific methodologies that we have, how much could they really learn about this phenomenon? Well, yeah, I don't want to get bogged down in the science thing, but we will be doing another show with you, uh, fortunately, because we're running out of time. Uh, what, what I've noticed on the lecture circuit, and of course, my work for 40 years or so has been primarily ghost research, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I would address, well, I did a lot of work as a seminary student and as a graduate student in psychiatric hospitals, specifically to learn uh, who's going through stuff that's paranormal and who's just playing nuts, you know, that was the idea, Mm -hmm. but I would find that people, particularly who were schizophrenic, were very knowing, Uh, those who were um, relatively in control were experiencing things that made me question the nature of the illness. In other words, are these people really uh, you know, enduring uh, chemical imbalances in the brain, or, or are they aware of worlds that are real, or but even, that we're yeah. not? You know? Or even, yeah. uh, who's the guy with the God helmet? Uh, oh, uh, Dr. Michael Persinger. Yeah, Dr. Michael Persinger. He was like, just because it's in the brain doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. It's and then, so fast. It's very fascinating. Well, he was yeah. on the show. We were prepared to blow him out of the water, but, but he, was, he was great. But in any case, these questions are right. And the reason I'm bringing this up is the notion of politics and its influence on science. You know, politics among the scientists themselves. Because I've addressed groups of psychiatrists on this subject that I just Mm -hmm. mentioned. And they will be very upset as a group. But they'll come up to you afterwards, uh, many of them, not all of them, of course, and say, you know, I've wondered the same thing, but I don't dare say it because if I did, I'd lose my job. Exactly the same thing we're dealing with here. Yeah, Absolutely. so th- that, that's why I bring it up. So, I mean, yeah, there are issues here. A very, very good point, because there are so many people in the, this is in political circles, too, who are curious and take the subject seriously, who are interested, but they would never say so publicly. Mm-hmm. And and you can see why. Look what happened to Dennis Kucinich and others who have said anything about UFOs in Washington. You know, well, that's it. Well, well, one thinks of Jimmy Carter, who promised before yeah. his election that he'd you know, blow the cover on the whole thing. And all of a sudden, they well, what I, I say, they... They become president. They see the three ring binder, and right. then they clam up. 
Maybe, it's you know, true. Even, I mean, even Obama's been reticent about certain things. You wouldn't think he'd be reticent. I, about. You know, there's just a, 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 a huge political risk for anybody to be publicly, you know, associated with the subject, and regardless of their personal interest in it, they will. Just like what you said, they just don't want to talk about it publicly, but they will come up to you in private. I mean, and say things about it and express their interest. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Okay, well, let's uh, let's continue to go a little bit deeper uh, into this now. Um, as I say, you know, I've worked uh, in the paranormal mostly with so-called ghost research for many years. Ben's been with me now for six. And it's amazing how frequently uh, when people think they're seeing ghosts and when you put the time into it, it leads straight to apparent UFO phenomena. Because uh, we, we, we put up to, up to ten years into studying cases. You know, all these people you see in the media, they, you know, they breeze in with all this silly equipment they don't understand. They spend a couple of days and that's it, if that. But uh, the more you study it, the more you find. People might say, well, the more you think you find, but we, we believe it. And now, in your interviews with all these big shots, have other forms of paranormal phenomena been encountered during the same period as the UFO experiences? Well, the ones that I have focused on in my book, um, I would say mostly no, in terms of what I've been told. Has but anyone the, asked? Well, I... It's a good question. I mean, um, it's a good question. I can tell you that I, I think probably they have been asked. But the one that I think has the most of that quality to it is the Rendlesham Forest case. Oh, yeah. yeah and You're aware yeah. that we did 16 hours on the air mm-hmm. uh, with the Rendlesham spe- series of specials that, that brought out all kinds of interesting things. Well, that's so interesting. See, there you go. So, I mean, if you really dig into a case like that, and especially if you focus on Jim Pennison and John Burroughs, which exactly. you probably did on your show. Yeah. There's, you know, apparently some kind of missing time that happened, and they don't really know what happened to them during this period of time where they were standing right next to this landed craft. So, you know, I'm sure, I think that case certainly has uh, certain aspects to it like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, it's, it's for me, I mean, I'm just sort of very focused on trying to prove to the status quo that there are physical objects in the sky, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't go too much beyond that because I don't want to scare people away. Okay. So yeah. um, my focus is really on, you know, what do we know? How can we prove that? And I think this book proves it, quite honestly, that there are physical phenomena that we cannot explain. And here are their characteristics, and they've shown themselves to us over and over and over again. Sure. And when you get into the other aspects of it, it's, it's much harder to sort of to document, for one thing, because usually it's, it involves just one person having had an experience. And you just, it's very hard to document it, you know, because uh, the, the more sort of high, strange, paranormal-type things maybe don't happen to a lot of people at the same time. And, it, you know, it's, it's harder to document it. It's also harder to make people take it seriously. So I, I tend to focus on the sort of other level that I'm dealing with, mm-hmm. which does not mean that I don't find the rest of it fascinating. I do. Okay. But um, it's just not something that I focus on because I'm on a particular mission, you know, and I can only do so much. But I find it really fascinating what yeah. you're doing. Okay. Now, moving into the realm of, of I, supp- I suppose you could call it pop UFO research, there are a number of things that people believe. Now, I'm one of them when it comes to Area 51. I didn't until I, I was in that area, and I, th- th- I was chased, and there were things that happened to me that if, if you had told me before this had happened, I would have told you you were crazy. And when, it's a little different when it happens to you, but that's kind of a long story. I've mentioned it on the air before. Do you believe that there is a huge underground cover-up for one reason or another 
having to do with the UFO phenomenon. Personally, I always thought this Area 51 thing was, uh, they were, you know, the, the UFO story itself was a cover for secret aircraft development, but there seems to be more to it. I mean, what, what say you on all that? I mean, I certainly don't know. I am not an expert on Area 51 in the least. And I guess there's this new book that I'm sure you guys have heard about that's just come out about Area 51. Yeah, the newest um, theories, yeah. And, you know, she comes out with this wild story about what happened at Roswell, which is really kind of bizarre to me. But, um, you know, the question of whether there is some kind of secret government research program, I mean, I don't think we have a definitive answer, of course. I mean, it's, it's again, it's speculative because if we, we don't know. So we're really talking speculation here. I certainly have sources that have told who I trust and people that have told me that there is something like that going on. It's small, that it, it may be contracted out to non-governmental organizations or corporations that are related to the government that have a have a role to play in it. Uh, I can't prove it, though. I mean, I've been told by people I trust that there is such a program or other people at high levels that will say there is not such a program. And, um, you know, but I think it's quite likely that there is. I don't know how extensive it is, and I, I get the feeling that if there is, they may not really have learned very much about how these things work, which is one reason why we haven't progressed very far with this thing. Yeah. They don't know how these things, how the UFOs work, but that again is speculation, and I generally don't, you know, don't uh, spend a lot of time speculating. I, it's a fascinating question, mm-hmm. but we don't have proof one way or the other on on that question. Okay, we're with you. So, yeah, okay. so um, that's sort of my take on it. Is I take seriously what these people have told me, and I do write about that in the book, but I I, I don't have the kind of definitive information on it that I would like. Okay, I hope someday we have it. Yeah, me too. All right, who is the highest government official of any government with whom you've spoken and whom you feel has has gone on the record with this information? Well, I mean, there are five generals that have written for my book, so I don't know. You know, those are that's high level military people, and then um, you know, there's a high level FAA official, John Callahan. He was probably the third or the fourth from the whole top of the FAA. He was head of the Division of Accidents and Investigations in the 1980s. For the FAA, so he's most of them are former officials, unfortunately, because while they're in office, they don't talk about this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's an extremely high-level guy, and a former governor of Arizona, Vice Symington. I mean, we have an American governor who has also come forward in this book about this. Okay. And then uh, the generals are all from other countries, but um, you know, I think a general is a very a very high-level position, and the former head of the National Space agency in France, which is the equivalent of our NASA, has also contributed. Um, we have a, a senior scientist from NASA who has a tremendously respectable career, has done all kinds of papers for for the government and, you know, done a lot of research at NASA. So those are some of the higher level people. And then there's, uh, I have also, um, you know, pilots, which are not exactly high, the highest level necessarily, but they're people that are in the skies directly dealing with this issue and seeing them and encountering them and being forced to confront them, mm-hmm. you know, in a very direct way. And I've had numerous pilots have written pieces for my book as well. So there's some really high-level people out there. I'd like to find an American general who's willing to go on the record. Yeah, so would we. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. you know, we've got five now from other countries, and there's there's Russian generals. There was one that was going to write something for my book, but it never materialized. But okay. uh, American generals, I mean, even those that, you know, that do know something or have are willing to take it as seriously, they're just so hyper, hyper sensitive about doing it, even after they retire. 
because they have pensions and, you know, they're all, a lot of them are acting as consultants and the sensitivity to this issue in America is much worse than it is in other countries. Well, we found that particularly with Colonel Charles Hall. Uh, who was on many of our shows during that 60, during that Rendlesham 16-hour special, and he was, uh, and you know, having you know former military myself, you, know, you can understand why he was uh, so concerned. But he was careful about what he said. But he, um, at the same time, you know, was uh, we feel forthright. Absolutely, and he has really said a lot. He has, re- yeah. He's, and he is actually the highest level American military person That's on right. the record who has actually had been a witness to something and also filed a written report on it and has taken the position he has. So mm-hmm. he is a very important figure, too, in this. Um, and, yeah, I know him well and respect him respect him very well. He did yeah, a chapter we. in my yep. book also. Okay. So. Well, we have plenty of other questions, but um, we're going. I, I want to give uh, Leslie a chance to talk about her website and her book, where people can get the book, and uh, what she's working on, and where she where she's speaking. And Ben was going to ask you one last thing here. Okay. Oh, so what is your next step in your work? Well, I mean, what I'm trying to focus on, and this is as, as I described in the book. Well, there's two projects I'm really involved with right, one, right now. One of them is a, is, a, is a History Channel documentary that's going to be aired this summer. It's produced by an independent film company called Breakthrough Film, and I'm one of the producers on that. But it's, it was commissioned by the History Channel, and it's really based on the book. It's going to be a two-hour special, which um, highlights numerous cases from the book. And we went to Europe, we went to Belgium, we went to the Channel Islands, a lot of different places to interview the people that have written for the book and cover those cases. So that has taken up a lot of my time since the book came out. And the second thing is, as I as I said in the book, I'm really working hard behind the scenes in Washington to try and get the U.S. government to take a new look at the subject and hopefully uh, appoint some kind of government official to be a point person, as I describe in the book, whether you know, and have some kind of office within the U.S. structure that is an official uh, place that can deal with the subject responsibly and can liaison with the other official agencies in other parts of the world. And um, that takes that's a very very hard undertaking. It takes a lot of time and energy. I'm very involved with it right now, and it's just not something I can tell you a lot of specifics about. Uh, but just to know that it's I am working on that, and I hope we're going to get some results. Very good. Well, well done so far. Yeah, and, I mean um, we'll see where it leads, but um, uh, I'm very committed to just you know that's really the bottom line reason for my writing this book was to hopefully that it's have it as a tool to be able to affect change within the U.S. government and how they see the subject. Okay. And so I'm really um, I'm carrying that forward, you know, right now. And, it's, it's, okay. and then the, the other thing is that the paperback edition is coming out in August, so I'm involved with, we've been, you know, sort of, uh, that takes some time, so we're going to do another publicity campaign around that. Very good. Um, so, yeah, people can, and they it is available on Kindle, by the way, for people. Oh, very good. Yeah, well, our sponsor yeah. there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, so and tell us about your website and where people can get your book. Okay, great. Well, the, the website is, um, the name of the book is UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And so my website is sort of an abbreviation of that title. It's ufosontherecord.com. Um, so uh, if you go to that website, there's a link to Amazon and to any other bookseller that you might want to go to get the book, um, plus a lot of information about the book. And it was endorsed by Michio Kaku, who's a very well-known physicist, and other scientists. Um, so the book has really been solidly backed by Ph.D. scientists. And that some of their statements are on the website as well. you find a lot of background information. 
So um, I encourage people to go there. I also have a Facebook page, which is very active, and there's a link to that on my website. And mm-hmm. I'm very responsive to people on that site. I, I'm very involved with it and love to hear from people on the Facebook site who have read the book or have questions or points they want to make. We have you know a lot going on in that on that as well. Yeah, I noticed. That. Well, I'm a friend of yours on Facebook, and what is that? Yeah, you uh, don't even have to be a friend to go to my author page. page. It's an open page, so anybody yep. can just go. Just click the like button at the top. And the book is, you know, the book is a $26 book, but on Amazon, I think it's only about $16 right now. Mm-hmm. So it's really not, uh, it's a good deal to get it on Amazon. It's not expensive. Um, it's got lots of color photographs in the middle, glossy photographs. And I think that's one of the special things, too, about the whole UFO situation is people say, well, why aren't there any photographs, you know? Mm-hmm. There have been a, some photographs, and not that many, but five, six, seven photographs over the course of decades that are absolutely exceptional and have been thoroughly, thoroughly investigated and studied by scientists and laboratories and photo analysts. And those pictures are in this book, and they're, they're really, really stunning photographs um, that show. And they're, they're real. They're evidence. Mm-hmm. They are solid evidence for the reality of, the, of something physical. Very good. So, um, I, you know, I think that's another feature that the book has that makes it exciting. But I also have been told if you get it on Kindle, you don't get the photos. Just so oh, people uh, know that. Uh, oh, <laughs> See, my books, I've never been told that. Uh, yeah, well, well, I mean, maybe they maybe they changed it, but some people were writing me on Facebook in, uh, in the beginning when the book first came out that they were buying it on Kindle and it did not include the photograph. I've never heard that. Well, we'll look into it. At least they can do is, um, you know, answer the question on that. Well, yeah, we're going maybe to continue. that's changed. I don't know. Well, we're going to continue our conversation with Leslie Kane on Sunday, June 12th, as we welcome her to our CBS Radio edition. So stay tuned uh, for that and, and make sure you check that out. And again, UFOsOnTheRecord.com. Leslie, thank you for joining us tonight. It was a fascinating conversation, and we'll look forward to June 12th on CBS. Thanks a lot, both of you, Paul and Ben. It was a great show. really appreciate what you're doing, and uh, thanks for having me on. Very good. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. Have a good evening. You too. Thank you. Okay, we have a little bit of time for an email or two here. After all that giant stack of emails right there. Yes, well, we, we, we certainly refurbished our stack a week ago tonight. We were on Coast to Coast AM with George Nuri, and we seem to have hit a nerve with uh, so some people, some of the things mm. we said. And we are very um, happy to have received all these emails. We received up to a 1,000 of them, so we'll have a lot of shows. Makes us feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. Well, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of good response. All right, this is from... Uh, Deborah, and I won't give her last name or I'll get in trouble with my son. Uh, Deborah, and she does not say where she's from, but this is a very simple question. Oh, well, she does give her last name. Just kidding. All right. uh, Tell me more about this parasite slash predator species. Okay. That's it. That's that's a good Um, short question. There you go. All right. Well, one of the things that we are very active in in our own work is what we believe are is dealing with parasites slash predatory species from other parts of the multiverse. Okay, that sounds indecipherable, so let me explain. Where is Arnold Schwarzenegger and his minigun? Well, exactly. And what we're talking about here is, when I started out in paranormal research, as I said, over 40 years ago now, I was a a student for the priesthood, and I started out with the usual, uh, even from that point of view, a spiritualist assumptions that... People report ghosts and that they're spirits of the dead. Uh, there were all there were other things that were not human, but they were you know servants of the devil or some, you know things like that. Well, I quickly learned that those explanations really aren't good enough, 
and that there are many uh, factors here that go very deeply into the nature of what the universe really is and the nature of reality. And the long story short is that we believe that there are, as is speculated about in quantum physics, the fringe branch of physics now, a lot of responsible scientists are speculating that there is a multiverse out there, not just a universe. We have parallel worlds all around us all the time in which every possibility exists. Every possibility includes uh, not just the possibility that, or the, or the probability that you are a doctor in a parallel world or a uh, priest or a, a radio talk show host in a parallel world, but that there are other species and things that are totally non-human and, and worlds that are very would be very alien to us. They're not necessarily other planets in the classical sense of the word. So the parasite problem has to do with a species, that, or, or actually about nine different species that we've run into, who are responsible for our beliefs about evil spirits, demons, this kind of thing. And uh, we uh, have to deal with these things in many cases where... The, a lot of negativity is going on. Our conclusion, and the conclusion of many other people who've researched this, is that these entities are not spirits in the normal sense of the word. We can't seem to get away from that idea. I have encountered them physically, uh, had physical altercations with them on occasion. Uh, they are not human. They are cosmic mosquitoes, as it were. I'm not saying they're insects, but I mean they, they feed upon the negative uh, reactions and feelings and energy of not only our species but a number of others and in our if you want to say cosmic journey around the multiverse ben and i have encountered other species who have the same problems as we have with these things so that in a sense is is what these parasites are we find that it is not necessarily all that difficult to get rid of them or to put them to sleep so to speak and to get them out of your life but we find that many times people have been uh, influenced negatively by them, and uh, it's a problem. We just started a case in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, just last week, in which uh, people were saying that people would move into this apartment, and everybody's life would fall apart when they did. And we indeed found some parasite influences going on. We'll be talking about that in other shows, but that, that in a nutshell, is the answer to your question. That was a two-hour lecture in about three minutes. Well, so. I don't think it was two hours. I know, I tend to lecture it. Well, no, no, no. I'm just saying you just crunch that down to three minutes. That's oh, I see. Awesome. Okay, all right. Okay, yeah, I didn't get you there. but anyway, anyway, so many thanks to our producer, Steve Bianchi, and we won't see you live again until June 6th, I'm afraid. Ben and I will be on the road. So WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com. We'll do a rebroadcast next week. But on June 6th, we plan an open line show to start in again on this huge pile of emails. Uh, that we got in the wake of that coast-to-coast appearance. Okay, so our Sunday evening CBS Radio edition in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at www.newskyradio.com will also be airing rebroadcasts on May 26th and June 5th. Uh, May 29th. May 29th, whatever. Um, and we'll we'll pre- we'll be back and uh, we'll be live on June 11th and the second installment of our conversation with Leslie Kane on UFOs and the government. And remember, you can always get free podcasts of all our shows and show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. And we leave you with a quote this evening from that old sweetheart, Albert Einstein. Quote, great spirits have often encountered violent opposition from weak minds. Unquote. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of 
Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. 